Listener Production. Hello, it's Antoinette Latouf here. So, one of Australia's most famous detectives has done a very different kind of investigation. Instead of locking up criminals, he's befriended some of the country's worst to understand what made them get on the wrong side of the law. Bernie at his worst. At one particular point in time, he uh, attacked a uh, prison officer and tried to kill him by biting his throat. So we're talking a serious bad person. But there was another side of Bernie that I found when I sat down and actually got to know him. And uh, I'm happy to say we became quite friendly. That's Gary Jubelin, former New South Wales police homicide detective. And if the name is familiar, it's because he's famous for leading the William Tyrrell investigation. And then, of course, being booted out of the force for illegal recordings. And as you'll hear, his own criminal conviction has given him a very different perspective on the criminal mindset. Perhaps everyone's got some badness in them and then uh, depending on uh, the nature of the circumstances of their brain, they they have the potential to be a psychopath. That's your briefing in just a moment with Tom and Annika. But first, today's headlines. I'm joined by the wonderful Eleanor Harrison-Dengay. It is Wednesday the 7th of September. 70,000 families across the country will be without early childhood services today when centres shut down. Workers are set to rally from 3pm, calling for improved pay and conditions. It's time for change. Enough is enough. This is an unsustainable uh, system with too many parents and enrolments being turned away. Yes, so that's Helen Gibbons from the United Workers' Union there. The union has not put a number on how much exactly it wants wages to rise, but broadly it wants more recognition and asking to be valued as highly as schools. And the federal government has proposed an increase of childcare subsidies for more families from July, but the union wants more direct action. The government's also promised a review of the sector and a price regulation mechanism to help reduce out-of-pocket costs. Yes, so Eleanor, um, I'm down in Melbourne today because I was at the Chief Executive Women's Summit yesterday Mm. with female leaders and the PM was here yesterday and something that routinely came up was adequately funding early educators and completely flipping childcare subsidies on its head. So like in Scandinavia, in Sweden, for example, where... Early education is treated like public schools. It's not means tested. It's funded. It's free for 15 hours a week. And the Prime Minister, he gave the opening address. And he did say he pledged to make childcare more affordable. But I suspect anything he comes with um, is going to be met with resistance and said that it doesn't go far enough. The federal government is promising to do more to tackle the cost of living in the upcoming October budget. We are engaged in cost of living relief and that is what you will see in our budget. Anthony Albanese there. In addition to more childcare subsidies, cuts to the cost of listed medicines is another measure set to be taken. It comes after the Reserve Bank hiked interest rates yet again yesterday to 2.35%, up half a percent from last month. So that means households with a $500,000 loan are paying about $600 a month more than they were in May when the cash rate was at 0.1%. And I would add here, Eleanor, I reckon for those living in places like Sydney and Melbourne, uh, calculating it at half a million dollar loan, that's pretty conservative mm-hmm. um, given just how much house prices cost. This is tough. 
This will tighten the screws on family budgets. Meanwhile, the Greens are calling for the RBA Governor Philip Lowe's resignation. Dr Lowe has got to go because he told Australians interest rates wouldn't go up until 2024. And it's predicted more rate hikes are on the way. Inflation is tipped to hit 7.8% by the end of the year. And so the RBA wants to bring that number down to within the 2 to 3% mark. So we could have as many as five more rate rises. That's wild. And I'm just not sure how households are going to manage because let's not forget that fuel excise, that was always going to be short term and it's fast coming to an end. I think 29th of September is that end date. So that fuel excise was cut from 44 cents to 22 cents. So petrol is going to be 22 cents more expensive. Fun times. The Chinese ambassador Xiao Tian has said when conditions are right, he would like President Xi Jinping to meet with Anthony Albanese. For the top leaders of two countries to meet, we have to make sure that it's going to be a constructive one instead of a uh, destructive one. When there's re- really a wish and will from both sides, I'd love to see a top level meeting between two, 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 two countries. That's the ambassador on 7.30 there. These remarks could signal a further thawing in relations. It's after Xiao indicated last month that trade negotiations could get back underway. And the ambassador also spoke of how a recent UN report into China's treatment of its Uyghur population in Xinjiang was apparently false. So the report from the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights says that the largely Muslim population in that western province of China are suffering torture and arbitrary detention. And then I think just a few hours afterwards, that High Commissioner resigned. So it's uh, it's quite a murky mm. issue. Um, and Xiao, in that mm. interview, it was quite an interesting one because you, you rarely, you know, have these um, high-level sort of interviews happening. But uh, this is, uh, you know, uh, the second one in, you know, I think as many months. So it's, it's very interesting to see. But um, Xiao was also reiterating the Chinese government's determination to reunite with Taiwan. He was sort of saying, we've waited seven mm. decades, we can wait longer to be able to reunite peacefully. But, yeah, it was a very strange but interesting interview because he didn't shy away from uh, addressing all the questions. Yeah, and the ambassador also said he would offer help to the detained Australian journalist Chung Lei to contact her family. So um, you may remember the journalist, um, she's been in prison for more than two years after her arrest in appalling conditions. She was tried behind closed doors. We don't have an official sentence. We don't know exactly what she is being accused of other than a suspicion of illegally supplying state secrets overseas. Um, yet she continues to be in prison. But the fact that these issues, which normally are not discussed openly or directly have been on a platform like 730. I I think that signals a a willingness to talk about issues that have um, in recent months, if not years, led to a lot of friction between the two nations. Mm, I mean, he did also say in that interview that basically he talked about her as if she'd already been convicted. And I think it's probably worth noting that China has a 99% conviction rate. New UK Prime Minister Liz Trust has been sworn in by the Queen. She's delivered her maiden speech, promising to boost the UK's economy and stem soaring energy bills. We shouldn't be daunted by the challenges we face. As strong as the storm may be, I know that the British people are stronger. Our country was built by people who get things done. I am confident that together we can ride out the storm. 
She also thanked Boris Johnson, who announced his resignation in July after a series of scandals, including holding parties at Downing Street (laughs) during lockdown. So she's actually the third woman in uh, Britain's top job after Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May. And the Queen swore her in at Balmoral in a break from tradition. The 96-year-old is suffering from mobility issues and it's the first time she's been seen in two months. Now, Eleanor, you know this is a huge passion of mine when it comes to representation. And I have to say the UK is way further ahead than Australia in terms of politics reflecting its population. So the two contenders, obviously Liz Truss, a woman, um, and she won over Rishi Sunak, a man of Indian heritage. And in Australia, we the options we're continually given is, oh, he's two middle-aged white men to choose from. Yep, we definitely have a way to go. That's it for the headlines. Thanks so much, Eleanor. And coming up, Tom and Annika talk badness. Detective Inspector Gary Jubelin was one of Australia's most high-profile detectives, having served 34 years with the New South Wales Police Force. He led investigations into major murders, including Matthew Levison, the three Bowerville children, and the disappearance of three-year-old William Tyrrell. Then his career ended spectacularly in 2020, when he was convicted of illegal recordings during the Tyrrell investigation. Now, in the scheme of things, it was minuscule compared to some of the crimes we'll discuss. His sentence was a 10 grand fine. He's since gone on to host a top-rating podcast, I Catch Killers, and become a best-selling author. His new book, Badness, comes out today. Gary, thanks so much for joining us. You spent your career in the police force investigating and locking up criminals. And in this book, you spend your time hanging out with them and becoming friends with some of them. And you say right at the start that your own conviction for your illegal recordings in the William Tyrrell investigation meant that you were technically now a criminal and that helped you understand these other criminals. But they had done some horrific things. It sounds like you're being a bit hard on yourself, lumping yourself in with some of these violent criminals. Yeah, I understand what you're saying and and certainly the offences that I was convicted of um, pale into insignificance with some of the people I'm speaking to uh, since I've left the police. But it's felt like a uh, journey of types in that uh, I've left the police. I still had passion for um, crime, fighting crime, doing what I did. But since I've left the police and in the circumstances that I did, it was sort of taken away from me and I, I, I wanted to still do something with crime. And what I've found looking at uh, things from a different perspective, not through uh, the eyes of a detective, it has changed my view on a few things. So it's been quite interesting the last couple of years uh, what I've found out uh, speaking to these people because these are people I wouldn't be able to speak with on a level footing uh, when I was in the cops. It's just something that wouldn't be done. But since I've left the police, I've managed to um, get in contact with these people and I've been surprised by the relationships I've formed with some of them. Okay, so for example, you get to know Bernie Matthews, who was a serial bank robber and prison escapee, spent 20 years behind bars and a number of other fairly hardened criminals. Tell us about that change in perspective. What were you seeing differently and and what was it helping you understand? A mutual friend put me in contact with uh, Bernie Matthews and when we first met, and you're quite right, he was a notorious criminal. He was the longest-serving prisoner in Katingle. 
and to give a sense of uh, Bernie at his worst, at one particular point in time, he uh, attacked a uh, prison officer and tried to kill him by biting his throat. So we're talking a serious bad person. But there was another side of Bernie that I found when I sat down and actually got to know him. And uh, I'm happy to say we became quite friendly. Sadly, he's passed away. But it gave me an understanding of why Bernie was the type of person he was. He experienced extreme violence when he was younger and also in corrective services um, through the period of time in Grafton when uh, things weren't, uh, yeah, they were, they were pretty violent times. Now, I'm not excusing Bernie for the crimes that he, he's done, but it gave me an understanding of, okay, how does this turn people into bad people? And Bernie rattles off names. It's like who's who of the uh, notorious criminals of New South Wales that spent time with him in prison. And uh, his view was that that environment was creating bad people not making excuses for what they've done, but it was a natural flow on. You mentioned there a lot of the things that played into his life, but do you think some people are just born bad or are they a product of their environment? Are we making bad people? Yeah, well, that's uh, something else that I wanted to explore because quite often because of the nature of my work, people would say, is it nature or nurture? Um, that created uh, bad people. And uh, I had some uh, lengthy discussions with uh, a neuroscientist, James Fallon, from uh, the US. He had a really interesting take on it because he was examining psychopaths' brains and they all had a common, and I won't go into the details or show you how ignorant I am in uh, in neuroscience, <laughs> but, yeah, and probably all of us, but there was a portion of the brain that was identified as the type that would um, conducive to a psychopath. And what he found that his own brain in a scan that he did on his own brain had that same pattern. So for all intents and purposes, his brain pattern was very similar to that of uh, some notorious psychopaths. But he grew up in a happy environment, an environment that he was um, cared for and loved. And that was the difference. So when we talk nature, nurture, it appears, and this is from what I understand now, that it's a combination of both. You talk about some of the most notorious criminals. These are not people you became friends with. I'm talking about Ivan Milat and Martin Bryan. And you, I guess you, you kind of unravel this nature versus nurture question when it comes to evil. And in Ivan Milat's case, he had about 14 or 15 brothers or sisters and they all had a terrible upbringing, but they all didn't go down the path that, that he did. Um, Martin Bryan, again, you know, he had a very a very rough upbringing with his family, but not everyone with yeah. a, a rough upbringing does what he did. Yeah, and I think that's the point that uh, yeah, perhaps everyone's got some badness in them, and then uh, depending on uh, you know, the nature of the circumstances of their brain, they they have the potential to be a psychopath. But it's the environment. We looked at uh, Martin Bryant. Uh, we looked at. Um, different people, Ivan Malat, but we got a perspective from, and this is where I really enjoyed what uh, I was doing in the yeah, the process of uh, researching for the book. Looking at Ivan Malat, not from uh, the police, like I know plenty of police that worked on Ivan Malat and they've got a clear perspective on him, but from a person that shared a, a jail yard with him and he was the only person, this uh, person, it was John Killick, and you might know John Killick from, uh, he escaped from Civil War to prison in a uh, helicopter. Yeah. His Russian girlfriend hijacked a helicopter. <laughs> I spend a lot of time with John and speaking to him about Ivan Milat, he said at first he was charismatic. People gravitated towards him and that, but there was a evil, there was a, a sinister side of him and obviously the crimes that Ivan uh, committed, there's no uh, turning back from that. That is uh, what I consider pure evil. 
But um, with Martin Bryant, you look at that person, it was just a lost soul and that, again, not making excuses, but the damage that he did uh, down there in Port Arthur. Uh, we spoke to the uh, crime scene officer, a friend of mine that uh, was called down to uh, examine the crime scene and it was just horrific what he found there. And uh, so trying to understand why these crimes are committed and ways of preventing them. And when you've got somebody sitting in front of you who you suspect is bad or has done a bad thing, what signs do you look for, I guess, to give you the hint that they might possibly guilty? Is it as simple as just starting to unpick their story or is there parts of their personality that sort of stand out in those times? People have different styles in the interview room. I, I loved the interview room. That was my favourite part of policing, sitting down and, you know, assessing whether uh, someone's telling the truth or not. And, you know, invariably as a detective, you're sitting opposite someone that you know is going to try and lie and you're going to try and unravel those lies. Personally, I was looking more for the way the person reacted, body language, that, rather than the spoken word. People can say things that they don't mean, but I'm just looking for slight little indicators that uh, the way they react or have they got selective memory? I, oh, yeah, I can remember everything I did leading up to it. I can remember everything I did the next day, but I have no recollection of what happened on that day. Little things like that. So you, you test the information you've got. And when you go into an interview room, the biggest advantage you can give yourself is prepare as much as possible. Like the old saying, knowledge is power. You use that. You ask questions. You know the answer, but you wait and hear what they've got to say. Then you, you can make an assessment whether they're being truthful or not. What do you look for in their body language that might give you a sign that they're, they're lying or they're even evil? Sometimes uh, before it even gets to the interview room, I, I might say something that's not, you know, probably a little bit offensive, pushing a little bit further than what I, I normally would. And I'm interested how they reacted. If they're hiding nothing, invariably they'll, they'll call me on whatever I said to them. But if they're hiding something, they tend to put up with more things thrown at them that, uh, yeah, normally they would uh, argue against. But when they're hiding something, they don't want to create, uh, create an issue. The other way that they respond, whether they look at you when they're speaking to you, the time that they take to answer the questions, and also that uh, I see people become very animated where they're talking something that is truthful, but when they're lying, they pull back a little bit. To break it down, Tom, it's hard, like it's hard to analyse, but it's just something that you learn over the years when you're sitting opposite people that are you know, trying to lie to you time and time again. So the case of William Tyrrell is still unsolved, obviously, and from your writing, it's clear that you cannot stop thinking about it. And this week, you've called for an inquiry into the police investigation and you've cited concerns about the leaks to the media about the stepmother. So why do you think we need an inquiry into this investigation? What do you think is going wrong with it? I made a commitment when I was assigned the case five months after William disappeared that I'd do everything I could for William. And that commitment wasn't lost just when I left the police. I, I still have that commitment. I'm in a completely different area now. You mentioned the foster mother. When the investigation was handed over to me, it was handed over to me on the basis that she had been eliminated from the investigation. So the reason I'm speaking about, and I really, and, you know, my book contains portions of William Tyrrell matter, I felt obliged to speak out about it because I think people all need to take a step back. The focus should be on finding William. Calling for an inquiry, I'm just reiterating what was said by the... Um, New South Wales Police Minister in November last year, who said on the back of the criticism from the Commissioner, the very least he could do is uh, initiate an internal investigation about the handling of the case. 
As the general public, it, it doesn't always fill you with confidence when you hear these sort of things. A lot of people hope the police can solve these cases and that there aren't these sort of internal errors. So you worked for many years solving crimes. Does the public have a right to be confident in these sort of probes? And do you actually think we'll get an answer in this case? I, I hope, I always hope, and, and no matter what investigation I've worked on, there's always, and, and hope, but that's not naive hope. I believe every case is solvable. And I think the William Tyrrell case is solvable. I think in recent times, and uh, certainly in New South Wales, but I, I think it it's, uh, would have resonated across the country, with the recent conviction from the Teacher's Pet podcast of uh, Chris Dawson, that's has been widely acknowledged that without the scrutiny that was brought on that investigation by the uh, podcast, perhaps that matter wouldn't be solved. So I think any police should be accountable for their actions, their public servants, and what they do should be transparent, bearing in mind there's certain things that you've got to hold back from the public. I'm not, uh, not saying that, but I think there needs to be a degree of transparency to give the public confidence that everything's been done. I think the days have certainly gone when the police can just stand up and say, nothing to see here, ma'am, move along, the police have got this in order. Society's changed. We're more questioning and, uh, yeah, people have got to justify their actions and I, I think it's a, a slight change that's coming. So that was Gary Jubelin and I found it interesting, Annika, his theory on nature versus nurture and he was essentially pushing the theory that we all might have an element of evil, but it only gets brought out if we encounter really harsh circumstances. But I was thinking, isn't it the other way around? I mean, think about Ivan Milat's siblings who weren't serial killers. They all grew up in similar harsh circumstances, but they responded differently to those circumstances. So there was something actually different about him. And that might be where the evil lies. That's an interesting point, Tom. I hadn't even thought of that, actually. I sort of understood his argument that it was a bit of nurture v nature, that some people are born with these, uh, I guess, parts of their brain that might lead them down this path, but it's about early intervention to try and stop it. But there must be a bit of, I guess, personal, uh, your character that can come into this, that can see people go different ways when they are raised with the same parents and the same household and with a lot of the same DNA. Yeah, well, I guess the one thing that's easy to agree on is that it's not nature or nurture, it's nature and nurture. Okay, that's it for today's briefing. Tomorrow, we'll be looking at how Australia is forcing big tech to come clean on child abuse material. Listener.